Now, however, go to Luke chapter 10. And how do we say it? If you could remind me how we say the Luke. That's right. You don't, you don't say it like preppy. Hey, Luke. No, no, you say it like Darth Vader would say it. And if you don't know why, I can't help you. Um, Luke chapter 10. We are in the middle of a series that we're calling The Way. Remember the earliest Christians weren't known as Christians. They were called followers of the way. And they were not just living uh, the way of certain beliefs. They were living the way of a certain kind of life. Uh, After Jesus had risen from the dead, this community adopted the life of Jesus, not just the believing of Jesus. And so we want to look at the different ways in which this community distinguished itself. Now, to do that, brothers and sisters, we're going to do about 25 minutes of painful cultural background. And I know you're thrilled. So, so relevance, okay, here's the line. Relevance is 25 minutes away. You will wonder why this matters before then. And I will keep saying relevance 25 minutes away. Now, when relevance happens, I'm not going to announce it. You're just going to go, oh, okay, this is why this... Okay, so that's our deal. So 25 minutes, try to pay attention. Maybe you're thinking, hey, it's already been painful to this point. So if you're telling me we have 25 more minutes, that would be correct. Now, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, experts in the law, that was a fancy way of saying he was a Torah scholar. He was somebody who was an expert in the minutia of the 613 commandments of the Old Testament. At this point in Jewish history, there was an oral law that had developed around the 613 commandments. And so a teacher of the law was somebody who was an expert, a theologian, on all of those nuances. This guy, it says stands up to test Jesus. Now, one of the things I love about our Jesus is that he was constantly in trouble. And he was in trouble, one of the reasons he was so in trouble was because he hung out with the most unsavory people of his day. Right? Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. I mean, you just name who the scum of of first century Jewish culture was, and those were the people Jesus would spend time with. Now, he'd spend time with the rich people and religious people too, but they they were a bit more hard-hearted toward him. And so Jesus got into all kinds of trouble. He'd go around saying, listen, I came for the sick, not the healthy. Or other times he would say, the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. I mean, he'd have to defend himself over and over and over. And so some of the religious folk thought he was a heretic. So they were trying to flush out his heretical views on God's work in and through Israel. And so he stands up to test Jesus. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life isn't life in heaven to the Jewish mind. It is life on earth in the age to come. It's life in the messianic age. The Messiah was supposed to come, raise people from the dead, and we were to live on a renewed earth. And so the question isn't, how do I get to heaven? The question is, how do I share in the kind of life that's going to characterize the age to come? Now, this was a standard theology question in the first century. You know today how we have theology questions we can ask somebody and kind of find out where they stand on issues? So if you say, hey, do you believe you can lose your salvation? Well, yes or no kind of puts you in a certain box. 
Or, you know, do you believe in predestination? A yes or no puts you in a certain box. Well, this was a standard rabbinical question in the first century. What do you believe I have to do to inherit life in the age to come? Jesus gives a standard rabbinical answer. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, the phrase, how do you read it, references a debate that was had in the first century about how do you rank 613 commandments? What are the most important ones? What are the least important ones? They're all important, yes, because they're commandments, but what happens if they conflict? What happens if you're commanded to do no work on the Sabbath, but somebody's in trouble and to help them, you'd have to do work on the Sabbath? Which, which one is heavier, more important, and which one is lighter in that case? Now, I know this is terribly fascinating to everybody. But when Jesus is asking the, the Torah scholar, how do you read it? He's asking, how do you rank the commandments? There were two major schools of thought. Now, this begins the 25 minutes. Ha! You thought that other part. No. There were two major rabbinical schools of thought in the first century. Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. They both agreed that the number one commandment was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That of Deuteronomy 6. They disagreed as to what commandment was number two. Hillel believed the commandment uh, that was number two was to love your neighbor as yourself. Shammai believed commandment number two was out of Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. Now this becomes really important in a little bit. So Jesus is asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He responds, Jesus always responds when he's asked a question with another question. He's very Jewish that way. So he says, well, how do you rank the commandments? The Torah scholar says, verse 27, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? He sides with Hillel. Now Jesus gives the same answer in Matthew 22, right? When he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love God, love neighbor. So Jesus responds to that answer. Verse 28, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now let me ask you a question. If you are the Torah scholar looking to smoke out some heretical views that Jesus has, have you been successful? No! So far the conversation's gone, hey, what do you have to do to inherit eternal life? Well, how do you read the commands? How do you order them? Love God, love neighbor. Correct. Okay. So verse 29, but the Torah scholar wanted to justify himself to be seen as righteous. So he asked Jesus, so then who is my neighbor? Now, keep your finger here and go to the delightful book of Leviticus. Go to Leviticus 19. Because the question, who is my neighbor, was also a theological question in the first century. So Jesus is asked, what must I do to inherit life? How do you rank them? Love God, love neighbor. Jesus says, fantastic. But that wasn't enough. So the question becomes, who's my neighbor? Standard Jewish thought goes something like this. Leviticus 19 verse 18. 
Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among who? Your people, so other Israelites, but instead love your neighbor as yourself. So in this verse, the, the command is parallel. Do not hold a grudge against your people, but love instead your neighbor. So who's your neighbor in this? Your own people, right? Bless you. My son. <laughs> now, so, so, and there are other passages that say similarly. So the, so the standard Jewish thinking was my neighbor was someone who was Jewish. That's who my neighbor was. So when God says love your neighbor as yourself, it's love my people, my fellow Jews as myself. Go back to Luke. You will think that detour wasn't very worthwhile. I disagree. And we'll go back to Leviticus in about five minutes. It's going to be glorious. Now, the man wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? The standard answer was somebody who was Jewish. And, and you, they got that from passages like Leviticus 19. In reply, Jesus says this, a man was going down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem uh, was, uh, I don't know, 1,800, 2,000 feet above sea level. Down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was below sea level. So it literally was a trip down. It was a 17-mile road that was so windy and full of twists and turns and in some places so narrow, it was called the way of blood because robbers were so prevalent along that journey. And there were so many rich people that walked to and fro uh, from, uh, from Jericho to Jerusalem. A lot of the priests and the Levites lived in Jericho, and many of them were wealthier than kind of the common person. So Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. And you would have just, that would, that would be a common sort of scenario. If I said, hey, my car broke down on the 405, you know exactly, oh, sorry, I mean, you know exactly what that meant. In the same way, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Okay, got it. He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, the word half dead here means literally between life and death. Uncon unconscious. You would not have known. He, he, so you had no way to identify him. Right? So he's, he's beaten to a pulp. He's naked. He has no identifying clothes. And, and you can't tell if he's dead or not. That's the point that Jesus is making. And this little detail becomes really, really important later on in the story. You couldn't tell if he were dead or not. Now, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite... When he came to the place and saw the man pass by on the other side. Now, usually, this story of Jesus goes with the following moral. Hey, be nice to people who are hurt alongside of the road. Right? It's like divine AAA insurance is the point of the story. There's a bit more going on here than that. So, keep your finger here and go to Leviticus 21. We could have kept our fingers in Leviticus, but that would have been too many fingers keeping too many different places, and it had just been really, really confusing. Leviticus 21. Now, usually the priest and the Levite 
turn out to be the bad guys in the story because they were too busy or too religious to have time for some guy who's been beaten half to death. There's a little bit more going on here. Notice, these are rules. Now, if you don't know who priests and Levites are, a bit of background on them. God, God's people, Israel, were redeemed by him and a group of them called Levites were set apart to work in the temple. Levites, and there were a subclass of Levites called priests. The priests were the ones who actually offered the sacrifices and collected the tithes. The Levites assisted them. And there was a third group of people at the temple, Jewish lay people. These three groups of people would administer the sacrifices and the functions of the temple. So priests and Levites would have been well-respected religious leaders in the community, people chosen, set aside by God to serve in the temple. Okay, that's the bit of background. Notice this command given to the priests and by extension, the Levites. Verse uh, 1 of Leviticus 21. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the son of Aaron, and say to them, A priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who what? Who die. Now, ceremonial unclean, what that means is in order to serve at the temple, you had to go through purification rites. To be ceremonially unclean meant you couldn't serve in the temple until you had gone through all of these ceremonial washings and so on. So God says, listen, priests, don't defile yourself by coming into contact with a dead body or else you will be ceremonially unclean. Now, you can do that, verse 2, except for a close relative like a mother, father, son, daughter, unmarried sister. Verse 4, the priest must not make himself unclean for people related to him by marriage and so defile himself. If you jump down to verse 11, He must not enter a place where there is a dead body. So here, brothers and sisters, is the point Jesus is making. The priest and the Levite were commanded in God's law to not come into contact with dead bodies. In fact, the Pharisees taught that if your shadow touched a dead body, you were ceremonially unclean. If you came in, if you came in, it was close proximity, four cubits is what they taught, and we all know cubits, of course. Uh, If you came in, if you came within four cubits of a dead body, you were unclean. So here's what you need to know. It wasn't because the priest and the Levite were too busy that they didn't stop. In their understanding of God's law, it was more important to be holy than it was to love your neighbor. So Jesus, remember, the whole conversation starts with how you rank them. Be holy or love neighbor. So Jesus has an example of a priest and a Levite who believe it's better to be holy than to love neighbor. So they have, and this is the point, a religious obligation to walk by. And not only that, they, most likely, when it says they were coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, they would have been coming down with all of the tithes and offerings that they would have gotten. One of the ways that God took care of the Levites is that a tenth of every tenth, a tithe of a tithe, of everything that came in would be given to the Levites and to the priests. 
So if someone brought in a grain offering, a tenth of that tenth would be given to the priests and the Levites for their own family to use themselves. If you brought in oil or you brought in wine, I mean, all. So, so the way they were reimbursed for their service was that it would get a tenth of a tenth. Now, if we read Leviticus 22, which we're all dying to do, if you read Leviticus 22, Leviticus 22 outlines that priests and Levites have to be ceremonially clean to eat any of the offerings that they've been given. So in other words, they're trucking down the road, let's say with a donkey, filled with grain and oil and wine and whatever else, and they have to be ceremonially clean to eat. If the priest or the Levite were to come in contact with a dead body, or as it was taught, their shadow came in contact with a dead body, they would have to turn around, go back up to Jerusalem, and spend a week being purified. They had to undergo ceremonial washings each morning. They had to find a red heifer, we all know what that is, and reduce a red heifer to ashes over the course of seven days. And only then could they then eat the offerings that they themselves have collected. So do you understand, in Jesus' day, the priests and the Levites had very good reasons for walking on the other side because they can't tell if the person's alive or dead. So to be safe, they just walk around. Are you with me on this point? Now, it's hot up here. Some of you look cold. And I just want to say, I want to be really clear about our theology on this. Skinny people will never determine the temperature of this room, okay? <laughs> Go back to Luke. You can all bundle up. Go back to Luke chapter 10. Now, three kinds of people that worked in the temple. Priests, Levites, and you remember who the third one was? Jewish lay people. Good job. That would have been the expected third person. The expected third person is, oh, of course, Jesus loves common people. Of course. Of course, it's going to be just some ordinary common Jewish person that's going to be the hero of the story. And Jesus, can we agree Jesus is a bit of a genius? And Jesus kind of has something he needs to communicate to the teacher of the law. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw the man had been beaten up, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine, put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an end and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, two days' pay. And gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for the extra expense you will have. Now, suppose I was invited to speak at an NAACP rally. And I told a story about the good Ku Klux Klanman. How would that go over? Suppose I go over to Israel, and I'm sitting among... Israel, uh, Israeli settlers, and I tell the story about the good Hamas Palestinian. Is that going to go over well? Or suppose at a 9-11 memorial, speaking to the victims, people who lost people in 9-11 attacks, I, I talk about the good Taliban. 
See, we've so watered down this teaching. The offense in the examples that I just illustrated would equate to the offense by the Torah scholar when Jesus uses a Samaritan as the hero of the story. Samaritans, you have to understand who these are. Samaritans were people who had intermarried. They were Jewish folks that had intermarried with non-Jewish folks when the Jewish nation was in exile. Ethnically, they were offensive to pure-blooded Jews because they were half-breeds. They'd polluted the Messianic lines of, of Judaism. But religiously, Samaritans were even more offensive. Samaritans worshipped the same God, but they had a different mountain, different Torah, different Old Testament, different set of priests, and most offensive, Samaritans taught that teachers of the law in Judaism were false teachers leading the nation of Israel astray. Who asks the question of Jesus? A Torah scholar. There would not have been anyone more offensive to a Torah scholar than a Samaritan. Just to give you a, a feel for how offensive Samaritans were to the collective Jewish mind, fire up the iPad if you would. So 200 years before Jesus, one writer says, there are two nations that my soul detests and the third is not a nation at all. The inhabitants of Mount Seir, that's one nation. The Philistines, second nation. And the stupid people living in Shechem. Those, that was a Samaritan city. Okay, not huge fans. The Mishnah, collection of oral tradition. He that eats the bread of Samaritans is like to one that eats the flesh of pigs. Now, were pigs, were, were Jews allowed to eat pigs? No, they were the most defiling animal you could imagine. So the argument was, if you even break bread with a Samaritan, you're as defiled as if you'd eaten pigs. Now, isn't that interesting that when Jesus comes across a Samaritan woman, he invites her to give him a drink? It's just interesting. In another occasion, some of the Samaritans weren't real happy and they weren't welcoming to Jesus. And two of Jesus' disciples say, hey, let's call down fire on these guys. Right in the middle of Luke. And, and, and Jesus goes, nah, you guys are idiots. I mean, he doesn't say that, but that's kind of the implication. But that's how despised Samaritans were. This is good. The Samaritans were publicly cursed. This is one historian. Samaritans were publicly cursed in the synagogues during service. So, I thought we'd have some public cursing today, just to get a feel for, for what that's like. Are you ready? All together, let's curse Michigan Wolverines. Let's curse them together. Just in a moment. So Samaritans, uh, Samaritans were publicly cursed in the synagogues and a petition was daily offered up praying to God that the Samaritans would have no share in the life to come. Okay, I mean, this is how deep the animosity go. And, jo and Josephus writes, at the time of Jesus, the bitterness between Jews and Samaritans was intensified by the Samaritans having defiled the temple during Passover just a few years earlier by scattering human bones in the temple court. So the Jews went and destroyed the Samaritans' temple. Samaritans, on the day before Passover, one of the holiest days of the year, scattered human bones all over the temple court, defiling it. They hated each other. 
And so Jesus tells a story whose hero is the man the Torah scholar would have hated most. Hey Jesus, what must I do to inherit life in the age to come? Well, I mean, how do you read the law? How do you rank the commandments? Love God and love neighbor. Absolutely. Do that and you'll live. Now does the Torah scholar really love neighbor? Nope, not the way Jesus defines neighbor. But seeking to justify himself, the Torah scholar looks at Jesus and he says, hey, who's my neighbor? And it was thought all you had to do were just love fellow Jews. So Jesus tells a story about a priest and a Levite who believe that being holy is more important than loving neighbor, who had a religious obligation to walk by, and then tells a story about a Samaritan who shows costly love. The Samaritan packs up this half-dead person and takes him back to a Jewish town. Now, let me ask you, was that a risk the Samaritan took, showing up with a half-beaten, robbed Jewish person? Yes! So Jesus holds up an enemy of the man and then asks this question. Verse 36. Which of these three, priest, Levite, Samaritan, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who was beaten? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Notice, he can't even say Samaritan. In Greek, Jesus gives three easy hooks. Levite, priest, Samaritan. He says the one who had mercy on him. Now, there are some who think this was actually a positive answer and a, and, and a profound answer. I kind of tend to think, no, no, he just didn't want to say the Samaritan's name. And then Jesus, <laughs> go and do likewise. Hey, Holocaust survivors, let me tell you a story about the good SS officer. Imitate him. What? See, we cheapen this story when we make it about helping people in need. The issue, and of course help people in need, but that's not the issue here. The issue is who, if the second greatest command is just like the first one, love God, love neighbor is that important, then who is my neighbor? Jesus says, fantastic. Let me tell you a story about your enemy and make him the hero. So who is my neighbor? Jesus answers with who is your enemy? Your neighbor turns out to be the person you love least. And isn't this what he says everywhere else? When the Pharisees criticize him, he says things like, go and learn the meaning of this saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Or other places, he'll say, listen, what credit is it to you if you love people who are just like you? Even tax collectors do that. I tell you, love your enemies. And bless those who persecute you. And I haven't found one verse that's more disobeyed by the American church than that one. Love your enemies? No, no, no. I'd rather curse them. I'd rather judge them. I'd rather remind them of how wrong they are. I'd rather picket them. Or, my personal favorite, I'd rather avoid them altogether. Jesus hates religion when it's used as an excuse not to love. And you know what? I hate this, brothers and sisters. 
I would much rather Jesus say, love those who love you and those who don't love you, turn your back on. But if I'm reading this right, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. While we were still alienated and hostile, Christ died for us. And if the invitation of the Christian life is whatever you've received from Jesus, pass it on, well then evidently that also includes forgiving the people who are crucifying you. Blessing the people who are persecuting you. So let me ask a question. If Jesus were telling the parable of the Good Samaritan to you individually, who would he use for you? I mean, if the Samaritan was the guy that the Torah scholar would have hated most, if he were talking to me or he were talking to you, who would he talk about instead? Because you know he'd pick that person, right? He wouldn't let us off the hook. And, and maybe, and maybe, it's not a person, maybe it's a whole collection of people. Because the Jews hated the Samaritans as a race. So, you know, we left the, the back of your little weekly blank. What if you just wrote blank is my neighbor? And then filled in the blank with the person Jesus would have used in telling the story to you. I mean, and I don't mean to be offensive, but Jesus was, and so I'm in good company. Who would you put there? Illegal immigrants. They're my neighbor. The gay community. They're my neighbor. ACLU, they're my neighbor. Obama and the people who voted for him, they're my neighbor. Well, I mean, what does Jesus invite us to do when we identify someone as our neighbor? Does he invite us to tolerate them? No, he invites us to love and bless. And I don't know about you, that takes supernatural grace. I don't have it in me. And I, I could tell you who mine are. I mean, really. I, I've, I've had a few mentors abandon their wives, justifying it with, well, once saved, you're always saved. And, and seeing them remarry and throw that new marriage in the face of the wife and the family they left behind. I'm really angry with those people. I, I don't know why, but I, the, the internet has created an environment where we no longer have to be nice when we talk to people online. And so I've received some just brutal emails. And I've been the subject of some blogs that are just nasty. And they're just unkind, unfriendly, untrue. When I asked my wife, hey, who do I hate? <laughs> she said, those people. I feel misunderstood. I want to, def to defend myself. Often it's anonymous, so you can't do anything. So I've started a new practice. I started this a couple of years ago. I start praying God's blessing over them, whoever they are. 
I print out those emails, I carry them in my Bible, and I pray God's blessing over them. And when I start, is it an easy prayer? Nope. God bless them. (laughs) And that's all I could say. (laughs) And then I've just noticed this thing at work. That the longer I do that, the more the venom gets sucked away. And to the point where when I can pray for them and mean it, I realize I no longer have to any longer. Because God's done His work in me. And so brothers and sisters, Jesus has asked, what's it look like to have life in the age to come? And He responds by saying, well, how, how do you rank the commandments? Love God, love neighbor. That's right. That's right. Was my neighbor just someone who acts like me, looks like me, talks like me? Nah. Your neighbor turns out to be an enemy that I'm inviting you to emulate because that enemy shows neighbor love to someone just like you who was unlucky enough to get ambushed by robbers. So who was neighbor? The one who had mercy. Are there names of people that you can't say yourself? Just like the man couldn't say the name of the Samaritan? Have you ever been around someone who's been through just a horrible divorce? They don't refer to the other person as their name, right? It's always my ex. Just that. Can't say the name. Or when my parents divorced, they would always like, your father (laughs) or your mother. It's never. See, I believe that Jesus, if we're really serious about him, invites us into these sorts of things. And if we refuse, I think Jesus still loves us and dies for us. But we're held captive to something that's so insidious that in the name of Christianity, we hate people. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, here's a good, here's a good way to think about this. Let's expect Christians to act like Christians and let's expect non-Christians to act like non-Christians. Shall we do that? I have a little girl named Hannah. She's seven. Suppose, play with me on this dumb example. Suppose I give Hannah a magic white dress that will grow with her as she grows. And suppose this is the dress she will wear when she is married 600 years from now in the future. (laughs) And there is only one rule about this dress. She can wear it any time, but one rule. She has to keep it clean. Suppose Hannah asks me one day, Dad, can I wear my dress to school? Yeah. One rule. You've got to keep it clean. Hannah walks to school, suppose, and sees a friend of hers trapped in the mud who'd been riding her bike to school, trapped in the mud, kids crying, bikes tipped over, sees Hannah and asks for help. Hannah is confronted with two impulses. One impulse, must keep the dress clean. The other impulse, must go help my friend, even if I get dirty. Which impulse would Jesus reward in that moment? Go get dirty, if it means helping your friend. 
Suppose the one who was classified as a glutton and a drunkard. I imagine that that very same Jesus invites us to love to the place we get a little dirty. Because I don't know about you, people out there, they're screwed up. I mean, they're divorcing and they're sleeping around and they're exploring things and they're addicted. I mean, people in here are fantastic. I get that. But I'm talking about just the people out there. And see, Jesus hates religion when in his name we refuse to love messy people. And so he invites us to get a little dirty if that's what's required. Because the greatest command is love God, but the next one is just like it. Love your neighbor. And who's my neighbor? Turns out to be the person you like least. So what I want to do this morning, so I want to give you a moment with this blank sheet of paper. And if you want to put something there, you can. Standard, no looking on each other's papers, rules apply. Who would you write there? And I want to give you 30 seconds of silence. And I would ask, if you're willing, you don't have to, of course, that you would pray God's blessing over this person or this group of people. And I know for some of us that is so not an easy thing. But I just want to give us a bit of quiet just to begin to step into what kind of freedom comes when you bless those that persecute you or you begin to try to love those that are enemies. So close your eyes and just in the stillness, would you pray? So Lord Jesus, we ask for your grace to pass along what we ourselves have received. And we ask you, God, that we might look more and more like you as your spirit works in our hearts to bless and not curse, to repay evil with good. Apart from you, we can do nothing, Lord. And so we call upon your great name, to fill us, anoint us, bless us with faith and courage to take steps, however small, towards what you invite us into. And so now we sing, Lord, we declare that you are good and you are faithful. And out of that overflow, may we step boldly into obedience.